Welcome to Profiles. I'm Gina Asher. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and writers and get to know the person behind the persona. Our guest today is Eva Moses Kor, a survivor of the Holocaust who, with her twin sister, was a victim of Dr. Joseph Mengele's genetic experiments at Auschwitz concentration camp. An author and public speaker, Kor is founder of Candles, a Holocaust museum and education center based in Terre Haute, Indiana. Welcome, Eva Kor. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. With an introduction like that, I know our audience is intrigued by your childhood experience. Would you tell us how you found yourself as a young child in Auschwitz? First of all, the village where I was born in Ports was occupied by the Hungarians in 1940 when I was six years old. And with that, persecution against Jews began. So I was six years old when they called me a dirty Jew. And when I turned to my parents and I expected my mother to go to school and straighten everything out, she said, there is nothing we can do. Unfortunately, she was right. Our conditions in Hungary now, in occupied Hungary, became from bad to worse. And in 1944, they took us to a regional ghetto where we were about two months, I think, And then they told us that they are taking us to a labor camp in Hungary to leave all our personal belongings behind because, quote-unquote, the place they are taking us will have everything we need. This way they could cram more paper in the cattle car, and that was end of May of 1944, which is interesting later on to find out The D-Day was only a week later. The Nazis already knew that they were losing the war, yet they were bent on killing as many Jews as they could. So after four days in a cattle car without any food, water, or very little water, we arrived to a place where the cattle car doors opened, and it was the most God-forsaken place that I have ever seen. Everything was moving very fast. We stepped down. My mother grabbed my twin sister by the hand. We were her youngest children, hoping that as long as she could hold on to us, that she could protect us. And as I was standing there, 10 meters on that strip of land called the selection platform, I looked around in my childish curiosity. I was 10 years old and trying to understand what that place is, I realized that my father and two older sisters were gone. Holding on to my mother for dear life, a Nazi was yelling in German, twins, twins. We did not volunteer any information. He noticed Miriam and me who were dressed alike and looked alike, and he demanded to know from my mother if we were twins. And my mother Asked if that was good, because she didn't know what to say. And the Nazi nodded yes, and my mother said yes. Another Nazi came, pulled my mother in one direction. We were pulled in the opposite direction. I remember looking back and seeing her arms stretched out in despair as she was pulled away. I never got to say goodbye to her, but I didn't really understand that this would be the last time we would see her. And all that took 30 minutes 
From the time we stepped down from the cattle car, Miriam and I no longer had a family. We were all alone, and we had no idea what would happen to us. We became part of a group of little girls, all twins. In our group, there were 13 sets of little girls, age 2 to age 16, and one mother, by some miracle, was permitted to stay with her seven-year-old daughters. We were marched to a huge building for processing. Our clothes immediately were taken away, and we sat naked for most of the day on some bleachers. It was late in the afternoon when our processing began. We, the twins, were given short haircuts. The mother's head was shaved. Our dresses were returned with a huge oil-painted red cross on the back. The mother was given striped prison uniforms. Then they lined us up for registration and tattooing. And when my turn came, I decided to give them as much trouble as a 10-year-old could. Two Nazis and two women prisoners restrained me with all their strengths. While they heated a gadget, looked like a writing pen with a needle at the end, and when the needle got hot, they dipped it into ink, and they burned into my left arm, dot by dot, the capital letter A-7063. My twin sister Miriam became capital A-7064. Auschwitz was the only Nazi camp that tattooed its inmates. My husband is a survivor of four years in Buchenwald. He does not have a tattoo. And as people might look at my tattoo, they might think it has faded. Incorrect. It was always like that. I was not a very cooperating victim. When I compared notes with my sister in 1985, she said that in addition to creating a general confusion, I beat the Nazi holding my arm. I am sure that I was capable of doing it because once I decided to give them trouble, I was going to do everything in my power to do so. But I was raised to be a nice girl. I don't remember biting anyone. I must have blocked it out of my mind, as we know, nice girls and nice boys do not bite. So that was, then we were marched to a barrack, and these barracks were modular horse barns. The barrack inside was the filthiest place I have ever seen in my life. It uh, had no windows. The windows were on the upper part of the roof. And the building was divided into by a brick bench, then a walkway on each side of the brick bench, and then three-story high bunk beds. It was filthy and crude. The bunk beds were covered with straw mattresses and filthy blankets. And Miriam and I were given a bunk bed on the bottom. We thought after five days of not being able to stretch out and sleep at all, maybe we would be able to do that. But human beings cannot function after such a traumatic day. 
And as I was tossing and turning, because I couldn't fall asleep, I noticed something big and dark moving on the barrack floor. I began counting. When I got to five, I jumped up, screaming, Mice, mice! These were the biggest mice I have ever seen. A girl from the top bunk but said, These are not mice. These are rats, and I better get used to them because they are everywhere. So now we couldn't even try to go back to sleep. We went to the latrine, and as I entered the place, there on the filthy latrine floor were the scattered corpses of three children. I have never seen anybody dead before. But to me, it was clear that that could happen to my twin sister and me unless I did something to prevent it. So right then and there, I made a silent pledge, a promise to myself that I will do anything and everything within my power to make sure that Miriam and I shall not end up on that filthy latrine floor. And somehow... We would survive. So from the moment I left the latrine, I did everything instinctively. And I did everything instinctively right. I didn't know how to survive Auschwitz. But so from the moment I left, I never let any doubt or fear enter my mind. I had an image in my mind of Miriam and me walking out of this camp alive. And I never let go of that image until the day we were liberated. Our daily routine, we would be awakened at 5 a.m., help the younger kids put on their shoes, not their clothes. We never took off our clothes because we had nothing else to put on. As I look back at those days, I think we were the most deprived human beings on the face of this earth. We had nothing but the clothes on our back and our lives. Once we were, everybody had their shoes on, we would go outside for roll call, summer, winter, rain or shine. Then we would go back to the barrack after that and Dr. Mengele would come in with his entourage of eight people to count us. He wanted to know every morning how many guinea pigs alive he had. Then we would be given breakfast, which was nothing more but a brownish liquid they called coffee. At noon, if we were in the barracks, we would get a white stuff that looked like cream of wheat, except it was impossible to spoon or to swallow, so I'm sure it was not cream of wheat. And the only edible food we got in the day was at night, about a two and a half inch very dark bread that tasted okay and would fill our empty stomachs. For about two or three days in Auschwitz, I realized that I could sleep even though I was very hungry. But the days without any food were agonizing. So I had a difficult decision to make every night. Should I eat my bread tonight or should I gamble and have some bread tomorrow? Because on one occasion I saved my bread next morning. My bread was gone, stolen by those huge rats. The Nazis could have given us the bread in the morning 
as they have done with people who went to work, but we were not even given that little help. So after our brownish liquid for breakfast, we would be taken for experiments. Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we would be placed naked in a room for at least six hours, but often eight hours. Every part of my body was measured compared to my twin sister and compared to charts. These experiments were not dangerous, but they were unbelievably demeaning. And even in Auschwitz, I couldn't cope with the fact that they made me feel like I was nothing more but a living piece of meat. So the only way that I could cope with it is by blocking it out of my mind. On alternate dates, on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday, we would be taken to another lab that I call the blood lab. There, they would tie both of my arms to restrict the blood flow, take a lot of blood from my left arm, and give me a minimum of five injections into my right arm. Those were the deadly ones. The content of those injections, from rumors, we were told that they were germs, diseases, and drugs, but we didn't know then nor do I know today. But after one of those injections, I became very ill with a very high fever. I was trembling continuously. Both my legs and arms were swollen and very painful, and I had huge red spots throughout my body. My next visit to the blood lab, they did not tie my arms for blood taking and injection. Instead of that, they measured my fever, and I knew I was in trouble. I had a very high fever, and I was taken immediately to the hospital, which was another barrack, just like the other barrack, but this one was filled with people who looked more dead than alive. Next morning, Dr. Mengele came in with four other doctors. He never examined me. All he did looked at my fever chart, and then he declared, laughing sarcastically, he said to the other doctors, not talking to me, I was not a human being. Too bad, she's so young, she has only two weeks to live. I knew he was right, but I refused to die. So I made a second silent pledge that I will prove Dr. Mengele wrong. I will survive and be reunited with my sister. For the following two weeks, I have only one clear memory. I remember crawling on the barrack floor because I no longer could walk, and I was crawling to reach a faucet with water at the other end of the barrack. And as I was crawling, I would fade in and out of consciousness. And I kept telling myself, I must survive, I must survive. After two weeks, my fever broke, and I immediately felt a lot stronger and a lot better. It took me another three weeks before my fever chart showed normal, and I was released and reunited with my twin sister. But she looked very sick. And the way I understand Auschwitz, dying in Auschwitz was very easy. And people who gave up the struggle to fight for their own life, they were as good as dead. Because that is what kept us often going. Everybody was sick in Auschwitz. Everybody was skin and bones. So I asked her, what on earth happened to you? Because that was very dangerous. And she said, I cannot talk about it. I will not talk about it. And we never talked about Auschwitz until 1985. 
And then I asked her, Miriam, do you remember when I was taken to the hospital? She said, yes. I said, well, what happened to you? She said, well, I was kept in isolation by Nazi doctors studying me continuously, and they were waiting for something to happen. I don't know what that was, and I don't know if it happened or it didn't happen. I said to her, it didn't happen. It was the same two weeks that Mengele said I would die. Would I have died? Miriam would have been rushed immediately to Mengele's lab, killed with an injection to the heart. And then Mengele would have done the comparative autopsies. 1,500 sets of twins were used in the Auschwitz experiment, according to the Auschwitz Museum. And the estimated number of survivors is less than 200 individuals. Most of them died in the experiments. You inject one twin with a germ, and that twin dies. You kill the other one, and you do comparative autopsies. In normal life, that cannot be done. But in Auschwitz, that was all possible. So I said to her, what happened to you after the two weeks were up? She said, I was taken back to the labs, injected with many injections that made me feel very sick. We found out years later, when she got married in 1958 and then in 1960, expected her first baby, that she developed severe kidney infections that did not respond to any antibiotics. Second pregnancy in 1963 was worse. They did so a study to see why was she reacting the way she was, and they found out that Miriam's kidneys never grew larger than the size of a 10-year-old child. I begged Miriam not to have any more children. I said, you have two children. That is good enough. Every pregnancy is a life crisis. But she had a third child. And shortly after the baby was born, her kidneys started deteriorating very fast. And by 1987, she had to go on dialysis or have a kidney transplant. I donated my left kidney. We were a perfect match. All kidney and all organ recipients are given anti-rejection medication. At that hospital near Tel Aviv, they already had been doing kidney transplants for 10 years, and they had 2,000 kidney surviving kidney recipients. All of them were given anti-rejection medication. None of them developed cancer. Miriam was the only one among 2,000 to develop cancer polyps in her bladder. The doctors tried to treat it. For a while, it seemed promising, but ultimately the cancer metastasized everywhere. And Miriam died June 6, 1993. The only other thing that I want to talk about is the difference between being a child and being a teenager or a grown-up in a camp. Children lose their point of reference very fast. When I was in Auschwitz, I thought that the whole world was a big concentration camp, that everybody in the world lived like I lived, without parents, in miserable conditions, surrounded by Nazi guards. Until end of August of 1944, when an airplane appeared over the skies of Auschwitz. It was flying very low, and I could see the American flag on one of the wings.
That was my first sign of hope, that somebody was trying to free us. And hope was in very short supply in Auschwitz. August to September, we had one array a day. But the end of September, it started to have two errors a day. And suddenly our experiments dropped to five days a week. Then by October 3, the experiments dropped to four days a week. And by the end of October, we had four errors and all the experiments stopped. Then we started talking because you could sense in the air that that won't last for long. We are going to be free soon. Someday, very soon, we will be free and we will go home. But how exactly that would happen, we had no idea. And it wasn't until early January when the Nazis told us, everybody out of the barracks, we are taking you after the evening meal. Everybody is going to be, we are going to take you deep into Germany to protect you from the fighting. Where? I never liked the Nazis. They were mean to us when they were winning the war, so I figured they would be even meaner now that they are losing the war, and I didn't want to be near them. We decided to stay in our barrack. And amazingly, I found out years later that they went to all the other barracks. Ours was skipped. Hmm. I had a guardian angel. Next morning, we woke up. It was the morning, it was noon. We opened the barrack doors, we looked around, and all the guard towers were empty. All the Nazis were gone. We were on our own. So we needed to organize, and organizing camp language meant stealing from the Nazis water, blanket, and bread. And you're still, you're still talking about this group of children. Right. You know, I talked to my husband just recently, and I am amazed how little he remembers. And people say that I have an unbelievable memory. I guess I do. But we always have good, detailed memory when we have to take action. And my whole survival was my own action-taking. So it registered in my brain very clearly. Now, there are places where something happened that I didn't take action, that part is not very clear in my mind. So one day I was in the kitchen. I found quite a lot of bread. We loaded up. There were many people with me, maybe even a hundred or so. Because you found bread, you loaded up on it. We heard the strange car, sound of a car. No one had cars but Nazis. And when we went outside, there was an army vehicle with four Nazis jumping off like a jeep, and they opened their machine guns and they sprayed bullets indiscriminately. The last thing I remember was the barrel of the gun pointed at my head, maybe four feet from me, and then I faded away. When I woke up sometime later, I tried to feel my legs and my arms. I could, so I said maybe that's the way it is in the other world. And when I touched the girl lying next to me, her body was ice cold. And this is when I realized that I again had a guardian angel. And I fainted long before the bullets hit me. I raced back to the barrack, told Miriam what happened, and we were very sad that people were killed so close to liberation. But then we were concerned 
Why did the Nazis come back? That wasn't good news. We found out in the middle of the night, they blew up the gas chamber, the crematorium, the Canada building, and they were trying to eliminate the evidence. Our barrack was on fire. We couldn't stand the heat. Flames were shooting from the roof. We walked outside. The same four Nazis ordered us to march. And anybody who could not walk fast enough was shot on the spot. I think that is the reason they were named death marches. If you didn't walk, you were killed. We arrived in Auschwitz on January 18 at 1 a.m. at night. The Nazis disappeared. They couldn't take us any further because the Allies were outside the city limit. Heavy fighting raged in the area for the next nine days. Uh, All we were trying to do is just stay alive. And again, we didn't know how that liberation would happen. And one day... It was very quiet. All the guns were silent. And we thought, maybe this would be the day we would be free. But we again didn't know how. It was late in the afternoon. A woman ran into the barrack yelling at the top of her voice. We are free. We are free. Well, I still didn't see anything, so I went outside. And it was snowing heavily. I couldn't see for a while. It took me about 30 minutes to be able to look through the white out and I noticed at a distance lots of people they were all wrapped in white camouflage raincoats they were smiling from ear to ear and they didn't look like the Nazis which was very important and we ran up to them they gave us chocolate cookies and hugs and that was my first taste of freedom for me to realize that Miriam and I were free and alive that my little promise to myself, that first night in the latrine, became a reality. And that was an unbelievable experience. We're going to take a brief break right now. Um, We're talking to Holocaust survivor and Candles founder Eva Moses Kaur, a Nazi concentration camp survivor who has spent much of her life educating people about the Holocaust. As we go to break, we'll hear a song that Eva Kaur selected, Jerusalem Gold from Schindler's List. Why did you select this for us? Jerusalem of Gold has a beautiful melody, and I know the words in Hebrew. And it is a very uh, profound meaning. Here it sits in this old city surrounded with old buildings, and it's still sounding. It is of old times, of new times, and it it spreads that aura. And that is what really why it's written about Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is old and new.
Welcome back to Profiles. We're talking with Eva Moses Kaur, who is a Nazi concentration camp survivor. She's become an activist and an educator based on her experiences. Welcome back, Eva Kaur. I'm glad to be here. You did return to your village, the two of you, uh, which was still which was under communist rule. Yeah, and made your way to Israel. That is another very sad chapter because I remember my heart was beating really fast as we got off the train and we walked to our house. As we approached the house, the weeds were very tall and everything looked neglected because my hope was that if we, the two youngest, survived, somebody else had to survive. But the truth is nobody else survived. The house was ransacked. And I saw three pictures on one of the bedroom floors, and I picked them up and put them in my pocket. I never looked at them until 1978. And Ant found information on the update sheet that they had at some community centers run by the Red Cross and Jewish organizations. And so she sent a cousin, and the cousin actually came by train two or three hours later, and took us to my aunt. Romania became communist a year later. One flag went down, and they said, the king is dead, other flag went up, and long live the republic. So I said to myself, that's the way life is. Every now and then there is something big happening. But I was not a very good communist. I got in trouble with the Communist Party. So that happened in 1946. By 48, Israel became a state. And we applied for a visa to go to Israel. It took us two years to get our visa. So we arrived in Israel in June of 1950. And that was the first time since I was six years old that I slept without the nightmares of persecution. How did you make your way to Terre Haute, Indiana? Well, I was uh, in Israel. I was a sergeant major in the Israeli army stationed in Tel Aviv. In 1960, I met a tourist from Terre Haute, Indiana, also a survivor of the Holocaust of Buchenwald. And I knew his brother. We were pretty good friends with the family. And he definitely wanted me to meet his brother from the United States. So I met him on a blind date. I spoke no English. We had two dictionaries. <laughs> that is a very blind date. <laughs> blind, blind. And I do not advise it to anybody because communication was at a major handicap. And I was the one who was looking up all the words I didn't know. He said something in English, and maybe I kind of knew And I said yes, but I really didn't know what I was getting in. The next thing I find myself married in Terre Haute, Indiana. (laughs) You and your husband had two children, and you pursued a career in real estate. After all that happened to you, how did you assimilate into Midwestern American life? And, And also as a mother, considering your childhood, what was it like to be raising two kids in a completely different way? based on your experience? Well, when I landed in the United States, 
I thought I landed on the moon. I knew nothing about life in the United States. I spoke no English. My husband was not very helpful. He said to me, he was a pharmacist, you cannot call me unless it's an emergency. So the way I learned English was actually, I became pregnant about two or three weeks later. And I, a month after I arrived in the United States, the doctor confirmed that I am pregnant. I was tremendously depressed and homesick. I had no one to talk to. Your sister was in Israel still. Correct. She stayed in Israel and she died in Israel. And so I, my husband watched only sports and news on television. Israel didn't have television then. So to me, that was an interesting box. I was so homesick and, and bored. I said, okay, I'll turn on the television. And one day there was a nice film, a girl, a young girl kissing, kissing a young guy. So I, this was interesting to watch. And next day I turned on the same station. The same, we had only one station. The same thing was going on. That must be a really long movie. <laughs> so as I was listening, and it is interesting because I didn't have to answer. The words were very clear. The diction is very good. It's easy to catch. And for newcomers, it's very difficult to talk to other people because you the words are coming at one with very fast. You have to process them and then feel pressure to answer. Here I didn't have to answer. So I wrote down names, words that I phonetically, I tried to find them in the dictionary, but I wasn't doing a very good job. So after a few months, I had a long list of names, and I said to my husband, on a Sunday, could you help me find these words? He said, where on earth did you get these words from? I said, well, I've been watching a movie every day. He said, you've been watching soap operas? <laughs> and he was accusing me. I said, no, there was no soap there at all. <laughs> As a world turned, yes. that is the way I learned English. And uh, so, but everything was very challenging. I mean, going to the doctor, I had to go by myself because my husband was always busy. I would take, get, get a taxi and take me there. I didn't understand the instructions, and I was about seven months pregnant and very, very swollen. And the doctor said to me, are you watching your salt diet? I said, oh, yes, I eat quite a lot of salt. <laughs> he said, what? <laughs> well, I read the brochure he gave me. That was one of the words that I understood. I didn't pay attention to it. I thought, salt, have salt. So I, that is the way I got in all kind of difficulties. Uh, the children, the first child was born. I really think that all you have to do is children and love them. I read Dr. Spock. That was some help. I went a lot to the doctor with the children. Uh, I don't think that it was any different than any other mother. You don't really know what to expect. As a young mother, all the books and everything do not tell you enough. But all along the way, there were these issues coming up. And even when they were in junior high school and they wanted to do certain things, they said to me, oh, you were not born in this country. You do not understand how things are done here. 
I said, I am not going to spend that much money on designer clothes. You are going to have one designer outfit. The rest are going to be nice. I said, you know, to have good food and clean clothes, you have no idea. But of course they didn't have any idea. You've written that you really started thinking about about surviving twins in the in 1978 when you watched the miniseries The Holocaust. Before then, it hadn't been necessarily in your day-to-day mind. It wasn't, but it was. I never made it a secret. If anybody asked me, I always responded. What's happening then is that I realized the way that happened because of the miniseries. I appeared at the local NBC affiliate in Terre Haute Channel 2. And people heard about, saw the film, and they suddenly started contacting me to lecture at one school or another. And they were the ones who were asking me what were those experiments. Well, I knew very little. I remembered only bits and pieces, and I haven't quite worked through all my memories to try to put it together. And so I thought to myself that if I went to a library and looked for books about Mengele, that I would find what he tried to do, what was the scope of the... I found only statements that Mengele did experiments on twins. I knew that already. And then after a while, I said, what if I found these children who are in the picture with me as a liberation picture, which, by the way, it's a staged picture. We were not liberated between two rows of barbed wires. We were scared to death for our lives. We were inside the barrack. Next day or two days later, they dressed us up in striped uniforms and told us to march, and they filmed it. It was more dramatic. But that's, I am glad that they filmed it, so I know how I looked. But um, then I didn't know really how to find these children. There was no internet in 1978, 79, 80. So I decided to write to the media. And uh, what I would do, I would watch a lot of news, listen to a lot of radio, write down the reporters' names, then go to the library and get their address and write them one letter I wrote that I sent so many people. I would send them out about three times a year. And I tell you that by 1981, I had 500 names on my list because I realized that they could publicize it, that I had no other way of publicizing and I didn't know where to look for them. But... What ultimately happened, I realized that these people sometimes responded to me that they would like to write about it, but they can't because they have editors who decide not to. So I decided to maybe write to columnists. And actually one of the columnists I picked, because they write about anything they want. Once I convince them then they are going to do it. Second thing, it was about December of 1983. I was very upset that I wasn't getting any progress yet. 
and I was washing the dishes by hand, and I thought to myself, what if I made my, put together an organization and made myself president? Wouldn't that impress the reporters? And I said, yes. I am always impressed when I get a letter signed by somebody. President, I don't know what's organ, but they are the hot honchos, and this is the way I put the organization together. I also immediately named my sister vice president for Israeli survivors because I figured that the majority of the survivors would be living in Israel, and I was right. And with her help, in February of 1984, my brother-in-law, who was a journalist, uh, editor of one of the chief newspapers in Tel Aviv, in Israel, Mariv, he ran an ad. He didn't want to write an article. He didn't want to take advantage of his uh, position. So he actually put in a paid advertisement. Mengele twins used in experiments by Dr. Mengele. For, if you are interested for the purpose of a reunion, please call this number. And in one week, she got 80 telephone calls. She said to me, call me now. You wanted these numbers? I don't know what to do with them. The newspaper, television, radio, everybody wants to talk to me, and I don't know what to tell them, so you better get yourself here. So in February, mid-February, or maybe April 20, I was there. We had a press conference in Tel Aviv, and it was a riot because all the survivors there were... About 80 of them who showed up with their husbands and children, and all of them wanted to talk to me. I prepared slides of the liberation picture because, see, I bought the liberation film from the Auschwitz Museum in 1978. So I prepared slides, and we projected them, and I told them to write down in what slides they saw themselves that I would make pictures for them and actually send them pictures and it was then somebody asked me so what are we going to do now I said well I'm going to Auschwitz because Auschwitz loomed so big in my childhood I sometimes wondered was it real or was it a pigment of my imagination and I needed to verify that it was there and what I remembered was correct. So they said, well, how, who is going to pay for that? I said, I'm paying for myself. So I realized that some of the people had needs that they couldn't pay for. So anyway, as it happened, that was 1984. 1985 was going to be 40 years to the liberation of the camp. And somebody said, so where do you think, when do you think you want to go? And I just remembered, well, next year is going to be 40th. I didn't even think about it then until then. I said, that would be a good time to go. Because I already noticed on the news that there was a big thing made out of the 40 years to the Battle of the Bulge. And I said, well, 40 years to the liberation. So this is when NBC immediately allocated a crew and they contacted me that they will be there. And um, they said, if we are coming, so will be CBS and ABC, and that is correct. They were. 
CNN was not there, actually, but there were many of the international media was there. It was very, very uh, exciting for me to realize that and we were asked, we had the Israeli group and we had the American group. The Israelis had six, and from the United States there were two survivors, my children, and the his son. There were some about a delegation of eight people. Tell us about how your life has changed so much as you've become devoted to educating people about the Holocaust. It evolved. I, I never thought myself to be as an educator, but as I realized that children and grown-ups were uh, very interested in what I had to say, um, I continued, and it actually served in many ways, also as therapy in many ways. Um, in uh, Today, when I lecture to people, I always make sure, and I want to make sure that I share with your audience what I say. I talk about it a lot. This this is probably my 152nd interview lecture this year, and that's a lot. And I tell them, I want to thank them for listening to me, but I have another motive. I learned some lessons that I call them life lessons because I learned them in my life, that I am sure that people can use them. Life lesson number one, never ever give up on yourself or on your dreams. I didn't know how to survive Auschwitz. I remember growing up is very hard. And it's very hard even for young people in the United States. Every young person wonders, how do I fit into this big, big, mixed-up world? Will I be able to accomplish in life what I set out to do? And I can tell them if they give up, nothing will happen. Life lesson number two deals with prejudice. Prejudice is still with us today. So we all have to make an effort even I have to make an effort to judge people, them on their actions and content of their character. Because that is the only thing ultimately that matters. Life lesson number three. I have forgiven the Nazis. I have forgiven everybody. And if anybody would have told me 20 years ago today that I was going to forgive the Nazis, I would have told them to please go find a good psychiatrist. You cannot change what happened. So what can we do with all that pain? Now, I find it a miraculous thing that I ever came up with forgiveness. Uh, It happened after my sister died. It had little bit to do with her death. I was tremendously traumatized. And about a week, a month later after she died, I received a telephone call from a professor at Boston College who invited me to come and lecture to some doctors. But he said to me, by the way, when you come to Boston to lecture to these doctors, it would be really nice if you could bring with you a Nazi doctor. I said, well, that's an interesting idea. Where on earth do you think I can find one of those guys? And my sister and I, the last project we worked on was a documentary done by German television. 
And that was, we finished it in 1992, she died in 93. And in that documentary, there was a Nazi doctor from Auschwitz, whom I didn't know, he was not my doctor. But with that, I contacted the television network in Germany, and I got his telephone number. We contacted him and invited him to come to Boston. He did not want to come to Boston, but he was willing to meet with me at his house in Germany. And that is a way that on August 20, 1993, 20 years ago, I ended up in Germany meeting a Nazi doctor. I was so scared. He didn't know anything about Mengele's experiments, but he gave me a good interview for the Boston Conference. And then out of the blues, I asked him if he knew anything about the gas chambers of, of Auschwitz. How did he notice anything? When he said, that, that is a nightmare that I live with. As it happened, he was stationed outside the gas chamber, looking through a people, watching people die. So I told him this was extremely important information, and I wanted him to come with me to Auschwitz to sign a document of what he told me. I wanted it signed at the ruins of the gas chamber and in the company of witnesses so nobody could say he didn't sign it. And that was on the 50th anniversary. Correct. Well, that was 1993 when I met him. And uh, he said to me immediately that he would. But I wanted to thank this Nazi doctor, which to me is even today amazing. How on earth did that all happen? I don't understand it. And I couldn't figure out what to give a Nazi doctor. After 10 months of trying to come up with some idea, ultimately an idea popped into my head, how about a letter of forgiveness from me to him? And I knew immediately that this was a meaningful gift. But what I discovered for myself was life-changing. I discovered that I had the power to forgive. No one could give it to me. No one could take it away. Because up to that time, I always reacted to what was done to me. Now I realized that I had some power over my present and over my future. And to me, even today, that is the most important part of forgiveness. People are victimized, and they don't know how to get out of being a victim. That mentality is overbearing so many people. Happy people never create wars, in my opinion. On the other hand, people who forgive are at peace with themselves and with the world. And if anybody is looking for the secret to world peace, try teaching forgiveness. I go back to Auschwitz on the same project of teaching every year, as long as my old body will get me around somehow. I ask one person who participated who wanted, I said, why did you come decide to come to Auschwitz? He said, well, I heard a lot about it, and I wanted to see it. And then to have a survivor walk with me and show me where and what happened, that's an unbeatable combination. And the tragedy is that the survivors won't be around forever. So we are going next June. Look in our website. We always advertise it on our website, candlesholocaustmuseum.org. And if you have trouble remembering that, just Google Eva Core, and the second thing on the Google will come up, Candles Holocaust Museum. We are going to put it on. It's, it's already, we have got already 30 or 40 people signed up. 
we take no more than 100 people because we cannot handle the... I want to be able to have personal contact with every single one of them. And those who can't join you, um, the Candles Museum is open in Terre Haute. You also spend a lot of your time talking to groups, talking to school children. We are looking at some possibilities that we have a fund, an endowment fund by from two children of survivors to bring students there. Maybe we will be able to rent a bus and bring them there. But I think that it is a tremendously interesting way and very meaningful way for young people to learn that their problems of not having the latest designer outfit is not a tragedy. We've been speaking with Eva Moses Kaur, an Auschwitz survivor and founder of Candles, an organization that seeks to educate people about the Holocaust. As we go out, we'll hear another choice of Eva Kaur's Man of La Mancha. Tell us why you selected that song. First of all, I saw the play, and I was very impressed with that whole idea that you don't give up. And the words are so beautiful, to dream the impossible dream, to fight the unbeatable foe. It is a very, very beautifully written uh, song that I think in some way I found it very parallel to my life or my philosophy of life, which I have already given out. Never, ever give up. Treat people with respect and fairness and forgive your worst enemy. It will heal you inside. It will set you free. And you, by doing that, you are a seed for peace. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm Gina Asher for Profiles. Thanks for listening. Thank you. The program you just heard was recorded in August of 2013. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.